0: My problem as a dad and most dads' problems as dads and men is not that we should have had a better dad or that we should have a better spouse or that we should have had better kids or a better job or better friends. My problem as a dad, as a man, and your problem as a dad, as a man, it's true of all of us, not just dads. Moms too. Or singles too. Is me. My problem is me. And your problem, if you've got issues with your life not being as fulfilled as you would like for it to be or to be as God honoring as you'd like for it to be, can't be laid at the feet of your dad or your spouse or your kids or your job or your friends. It can be laid at the feet of me and you. And as we look around our world and we see issues that we should step into and we don't, I wonder why we don't. Or places where we could keep our mouths shut, and we don't. I wonder why we don't. It is it is it is this idea of me being at the center of my universe, and it's cultural. I mean, our culture is is definitely wired that way. Uh, I've, I've shared a lot with you recently in the last probably several months about our transitioning from what was at its origin our country a God centered culture to a family-centered culture. Now we've moved in transition to a child-centered culture where children are the center of the universe. You can agree or disagree with that. I happen to disagree with it because I don't think it's biblical. But we, we, that's, that's the world we live in. And so as such, most of the things that <clears throat> in an increasing way, <clears throat> most of the things that dads and men's have to say in our culture are, are ignored because we're marginalized. We're We're... And we've allowed that to happen. We've allowed that to happen in incrementally. Nobody, no, no, nobody ever said, "Gee, let's, let's remove the influence of men and fathers from our culture, can we?" Nobody ever said that. But incrementally, we've allowed that men to happen. And is it redeemable? I think it is. Is it probable? No, I don't think it is, unless men like you and me say, "Enough, enough." I'm not dealing. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not coddling to. I, I'm over political correctness. I'm over the feminization of men. In our, I'm over that, and enough is enough. And we need dads all around this country to rise up and say, no more, no more. This is what God's called me to be. This is who he's called me to be, and this is who I'm going to be, whether that's offensive or not. I hope it doesn't offend you, but if it does, so be it. Truth sometimes is offensive. It offends me when I'm in the wrong. Truth offends me, and it's truth, truth is an offensive thing. But as 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 we look at this this. This aspect, again, of, of our all of us, uh, not just men, not just dads, but all of us being in the wilderness, one of the things that keeps us in the wilderness are these common problems, these common temptations that we face. And, and temptation is common to man, to every man, every woman. And as we find ourselves from time to time in of and out of the desert places, the wilderness places in our life, what oftentimes got us there is falling to common temptations that we face. And sometimes what keeps us there is staying in com- common temptations that all of us face. So let's see some, common, some things that are, that are in common about that today from this text again. We looked at the first week, if you, if you remember, of winning in the wilderness in spite of the obstacles, in spite of the things that are around us, in spite of the things that are in front of us, that our culture places there or that we've incidentally or unintentionally placed there. And, and moving beyond those obstacles to leverage our adversity for God's glory and for our good, we looked at last week this idea of our being in, in a battle, in a daily battle for the mind, for, for what you and, the way you and I think and how we process things and how we see our culture. And that mental battle is, is engaging day after day in spiritual warfare. That's really what that is. It's a battle for the mind, a battle for how we think. And that's, that's very much the case as well in, in the wilderness was with Jesus and is with us. But as we look at today, I want us to see our common temptation. So let's look at this text again. From Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 together. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and said, If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. I want us to see here from this text today some things that are common about our temptations. Our common temptations are, first of all, are about provision. About provision. Look at verse 3 again with me. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Tell these stones to become bread. In essence, he says here that the heart of this verse is the temptation to redefine what we need to, for, the, for, the, for the enemy to say, you really need bread. You really need nourishment. And Jesus' response to this is, no, that's not what I need because my needs aren't physical. My needs are spiritual. My needs are emotional. My needs are mental. The physical is just one aspect of, of all of this. So he says <coughs> he wanted the Lord and, and, and consequently all of us to think provisionally, to, to say this and this and this are the things that I really need. And there's two problems with that. One is with Jesus in in his temptation here. One is that's not what his earthly ministry needed. It didn't need more bread. It needed a prepared, seasoned, um, stalwart leader in in, in the Son of God, and Jesus knew that. That's what this wilderness experience was about, not about meeting my physical needs with something to eat after a 40-day fast. We, We talked a couple of weeks ago how, his body at at that point has started to turn inward on him and start to eat eat away at itself. And it has a mental effect on you as well and dehydration and everything else does as well. So you start to see through a different lens. You start to see life and circumstances differently. And he was in a desperate place. The enemy knows that and tries to get him to see that your need is physical. He just said, no, it's not physical. It has nothing to do with with bread. In, In essence, his response said that. So... Get this, though. This is, if you don't leave with anything else, leave the, with this today. The devil wants us to think we need what we really want, that we really need what we want. The Lord wants us to see it this way. He's trying to get us to want what we really need. The enemy's trying to get us to redefine need, as I say, into want, and turn want into need, to say, what I want, I really need. And the Lord, in, this, in the picture of this, spins it back on him and says, What we really need to do is figure out what we need and learn to want that. And so I don't need bread. I want bread. I'm hungry. But I don't need bread bread in this moment. What I need in this moment is the strength to push back against you. The strength to say, no, not in this moment, not in this situation. That's not what my needs are. This is probably the clearest example in all of Scripture about self-control. And our culture is where it is because we have a lack of it. Our, we, we've moved and transitioned, as I said, as a culture over a lot over the past probably two or three decades. We've transitioned as a culture to where we've redefined need and want. And we, 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 as even as believers, buy into the marketing that we see around us of, you deserve this. You deserve thicker, fuller hair. You deserve a home that is that is in this subdivision. You deserve this kind of car. You deserve to have kids go to this school. You deserve to, to, to look like you walked out of, a, out of a magazine or out of a department store window. This is how you deserve to look and be. When in reality, that's not what we deserve. And it's not even what we should want. And so what we bought into, gradually and piecemeal and a bite at a time, into a culture that says, you deserve this. Not only do you deserve this, you need this. And the Lord pushing back against Satan is saying, no, I don't need the physical. What I need, you can't provide. What I need, these stones can't provide, even if they were bread. I need strength. That comes from the Father. It doesn't come from stones. It turned into bread. It comes from my Father. He realized that, knew that. But the enemy wants us to think it's about provision, that our common, the common temptation we have is, is provisional, and it's not provisional at all. It's not the things we need at all. It's the things we want. Secondly, our common temptations are not only about provision, but they're about position. Look at verse 6 with me. he says here, if you're the son of God, throw uh, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. He'll command his angels, and they'll lift you up. In essence, take this leap of faith, and not only will what will end up in this leap of faith be safety for you, but you'll be exalted. They'll lift you up. They'll not only protect you, but exalt you. And that is oftentimes what temptation is for us. It It makes us think. See, this position that you don't have, this, this sense of, of being known and fame and order, these things are things that you need, They're things that every, everybody else in our world wants, and you want them too, don't you? And so this idea of our, of our having position, of looking better, trumps being better. And so whether, whether we're looking better or not, the, the, the end game and the end outcome of, of this wilderness experience for Jesus was coming out of the backside of this better more refined, more, more with greater strength, greater sustenance, greater sense of priority, greater sense of value than when he went in in the first place. The fast will do that to you, but the temptation was a part of this process as well. <clears throat> and excuse, excuse me, Jesus really sees this. So a healthy amount of temptations you and I face are about making us look better in the end rather than our actually being better in the end. Uh, The real test is is in choosing what is better for us instead of what looks better for us. Now, the King James translation has a word for this. It's kind of a fancy word called expedient. And what that means is choosing short-term knowledge over long-term wisdom that makes us look better now instead of be better later. In In essence, maximizing the moment to where I come out of the moment looking better in the moment, as thin a veneer as that is, rather than being better long-term, which is really what you want. Really, is Jesus' response back to the the devil to say, no, it's not about my position on the temple, the most elevated position in Jewish culture. Here I am at the highest point of the peak of the the most revered building in in the world. It's not about my looking better in this moment. It's about my being better at the end of this test. You know, I should see temptation that way. We looked at in week one how God can deliver us from that does not tempt us at all. We looked at that as well. The scripture says God tempts no man, but he allows temptation to come into our world. Why? So you and I will be refined by it. By the test, we'll come out, as I said, looking better in the end, or, or being better in the end instead of a desire just to look better on the surface. So this begs the question, is my life about me or is it about folks? Is it about me or is it about him? Is it about me or is it about them? If my life is about me, then my goal, my quest is that I look better at the end of the day. If my life is about others and about him, my being better at the end of the day will be the outcome of that. Whether I look better doing it or not, if I'm better at the end, of the, if I'm more Christ-like at the end, at the end of this test, then it's, the test has been well worth it. It's about our, our provisions, about our position. Our common temptation, thirdly, are about possession. Look with me at verse 9. All this I'll give you, he said, if... You'll bow down and worship me. All this I will give you. (laughs) It's it's almost comical of how delusional the enemy is to take the king who created everything, who owns everything, and says, all this I'll I'll give you. Now, we looked at last week how these kingdoms, these man-made things, the enemy actually probably had a hand in creating and and, and were his to to give. But this creation and everything Jesus looked at, he put into place in the first place, fashioned into existence in in the first place, Hebrews says. And so here is here he is, uh, taking him to this place to look at the kingdoms of the world in this high upon a high mountain and says, I'm gonna give all this to you. It's like a, it's like trying to offer a diamond ring to somebody who owns the jewelry store. I mean, this was already his in the first place. As far as Jesus' eye could see, already belonged to him in the first place. And so here's the enemy trying to trying to twist, trying to contort truth or perceived truth into real truth, and Jesus is <laughs> I can almost see him, his his response to being comical to say, "Away from me, Satan! Uh, you, you're, you're all." <laughs> it's written, "Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only," as Jesus response to him. And so, it's 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 it, there's this idea of, of of our possessions being the thing that's preeminent. That's the very thing the enemy is trying to get him to see: is to say, "All this is far more important than your than your health and your safety." And Jesus says, "No, no, it isn't." Uh, you're to serve God and him only. You're not to serve possessions, not to serve kingdoms, not to serve this earth, not to serve the things of it. A great picture of this. You remember the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Let me share a few verses with you, verses 16 to 22. You can turn there if you like or listen along. The man came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to, to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is, about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He didn't leave sad because he was wealthy. He left sad because his possessions possessed him. So the other way around. He left disheartened because of Jesus, because of his, after his encounter with Jesus because the things he, he thought made him feel better. He certainly realized now in this encounter with Christ are pretty thin. And I've banked on these things giving me significance. And I see now that they don't. But yet they do because I'm unwilling to sell them to give to the poor to come follow him. So my possessions are possessing me, and I think the sadness in his heart as he left was the reality of this is true about me, and it's true about many of us that our possessions possess us instead of us possessing our possessions. Uh, we we bought into the lie, as I said a few moments ago, of entitlement that says we deserve thicker, fuller hair, we deserve this vehicle, we deserve this look, we deserve these clothes, we deserve this home, deserve this job, deserve kids like this. Deserve when in truth. As I've said before, what you and I deserve is to be in the back corner of hell this morning. crying out for mercy. It's exactly what we deserve. We don't get what we deserve, and we should be grateful that we don't because we have a God who looks at us through a lens of mercy. We have a God who looks at us through a lens of grace and says, you're not getting what you deserve. You're getting today what you have as a result of my mercy and my grace poured into your life. It would be wiser, instead of our possessions possessing us, it would be wiser for us to possess the call of God in our life and own it. It'd be wiser for us to possess the love of God and own it. be wiser for us to possess the grace of God and own it. be wiser for us to possess the word of God and own it, rather than the things we look at as possessions and the things that we see or believe, at least, to add value to what we, to our life or I am this because of that. No, I am that because of him, not because of the things I possess or the things that I own or the things that, that bring me gratification. Uh, the things we own, get this now, the things we own, we are accountable to. So it's far, it is vitally important that the things we're accountable to matter. Because the things we own, own us to a certain degree, and we're accountable to those things. Whether it's a mortgage, whether it's a job, whether it's, we're accountable to those things. The things we're accountable to are those things that matter. I can't answer that question for you, you have to. But the things we're accountable to in life need to be things that matter, need to be things that will outlive us things that will go beyond our influence even after we're gone. As I prayed, er- <clears throat> as I prayed earlier, my dad continues to have influence in my life even after he's, <clears throat> after he's gone. Why? Because I choose for that to happen. I choose to see what he valued and what I value and look at those things and say, okay, I value that too because it looks like this book. And see, this, this thing and value, yeah, I value that too because it looks like this book. So that continues to impact me today, and, and your, your parents still do as well. The question is, what owns us and what possesses us? Or are we possessed by the fact that his word, his call, his truth, his mercy, his grace, those are the things that matter in my life. I want to be accountable to those things. I want those things to possess me. I want those things are the things that I'm known for in my life, the, the wake of my life, that are in the wake of my life that people see. Finally, not only are common temptations about provision and about position and about possessions, turn to Matthew chapter 16. This passage dovetails extremely well with with our visit to the wilderness, and the verses we're going to look at here have to do with this. Our common temptation is finally, really in the end, as many are, as all of them are, about me. My common temptations are about me. Pick up with me in verse 21 of chapter 16, and let's look at this passage together. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Pretty bold response. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have, have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, those who want to be my disciples, watch this, must deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. But those who want to lose their life for me will find it. Those who want to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me. Does that look like our culture? <laughs> That's a 180 from our culture. Our culture knows nothing of self-denial. It, it, it is self-indulgence, yes. And our culture looks like self-denial is, is in the rearview mirror and getting growing further and further and further out of, out of our sight. The sad part about it is, as I look at the church and I look at the kingdom, we've become Christian consumers. We've become that, those who, that consume good music and teaching and, and fellowship and, and packaging and, and promotion and marketing. And, and I wonder if the church has become as selfless as Christ was. I wonder if we look like, like his response to Peter to say, Peter, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about what God wants for us. And in this moment, what he wants for us is to lay ourselves down, to deny ourselves. Yes, I know I'm Messiah. I know I can zap everybody out out, out of existence and it I know that. But that's not what I was here called here to do. I'm going to do and follow through with what I was called here to do. This moment is bigger than just this moment. It is it matters for all eternity in your life and in my life. And he's trying to get Peter to see this. Peter just can't see it. And at the core of this, He can't see it because he's unwilling to deny himself. He wants Jesus around, selfishly. I would, too, probably if I were in his boat. I don't want you to go anywhere. I don't want anything to happen to you. That'll never happen to you. I'll protect you. And the Lord Jesus said, it's it's a bigger picture than you see, Peter. There's more in play here than you're willing to look at and examine and and dig into. And you have to deny yourself to see it. I'm modeling self-denial for you in this moment. And you've got to learn that and see it and walk in it. If you want to understand that every moment... Is bigger than just this moment. Uh, its self-denial goes against everything that, that we're wired for. As I, as I said many times, we come out of the womb self-consumed. Feed me, warm me, change me. We come out of the womb consumed with ourselves, and, and to, to unlearn that behavior is only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's the only way we see self-denial as, as something of value, something a place that we should walk in, a place that we should learn to be, because it goes against. He goes against all of that. And the enemy knows that. I mean, he gets that as quick as quickly as we do. And as I said, that's why almost all temptation is about us. Working on us, working in us, working around us to get us to see, here's what you really deserve. That's what you really want. And what you really want is what you really need. He, he works and twists and, and deceives and... and He's, he's, good, he's good at it. He's crafty at it in our culture. And, and as I say, many in the kingdom and many in the church have bought into it to say, yeah, I deserve that. I do deserve that. I deserve cushioned pews. I deserve air conditioning. I deserve this kind of music, this kind of teaching, these kinds of friends, this, these kind of programming. And in reality, what we, what we deserve is far less than that. But he's trying to get us to see self-denial. is what this looks like. And that's exactly what he looked like in the wilderness. Walking in the wilderness in a hard place for your benefit and my benefit to show us that through the storms, through the valleys, through the struggles of life is where you learn the most about yourself and you learn the most about your God. And either it measures up or it doesn't. Either you do or you don't. And either he does or he doesn't. Either he's true to his word and good to it and will respond to it or he doesn't. Same in the wilderness. Our our, our Lord gives us a picture here of self-denial. Yet, most of us don't walk in that way. There's also a great promise here in this passage as well. He says, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Those who who choose, make a choice to walk in self-denial will actually learn what life is about. They'll actually see what I'm about. When you learn to deny yourself and deny what you want and deny what you feel like you deserve, then you're starting to scratch the surface to to, to pull the the, the clouds and the curtains back to say, this is what a walk with Christ looks like because that's exactly who he is. That's exactly what he's about. And if, if, if my life is about me, I can't look like him. I can't look like him unless I'm willing to deny myself, pick up my cross, and follow his example. Great promise there that our, that our finding ourselves means our losing ourselves to us and picking him up. Well, question and observation here as we close. Not just to dads, but to all of us. Ever think your life would be better if you could get out of your own way? I do. I think my life would be better if I could get out of my own way because I am my own problem, and I choose my own. I make my own choices, and I have the consequences of my own choices coming back to me for good or, or not so good sometimes. That, that is life. That's who we are, and that's the culture we live in, and to push back against that takes a great deal of struggle. It takes a great deal of tena- spiritual tenacity and a great deal of preparation that we're going to see next week. The key to winning in the wilderness. Next, I'm going to give next week away to you. The key to winning in the wilderness is the word. It's the word of God and how we apply it and see it and break it and speak it. But you and I are you and I are our own, our own worst enemy. If we can get out of our own way, life will start to work for us a whole lot better. But here's this observation too. It it will it'll start to work when I lay down what I want, and I start to pick up willingly and intentionally pick up what He wants for me. I willingly daily lay down what I want out of this day and I pick up out of this day what he wants for me. And I do that tomorrow. I lay down tomorrow what I want out of tomorrow, and I pick up out of tomorrow what he wants for me for tomorrow. And as as that becomes a daily process to me, it starts to become natural. It's unnatural to begin with. Self-denial is totally unnatural to begin with. But as it becomes a a, a discipline, and it it, it must be daily and sometimes minute to minute, minute depending on our surroundings. But when that discipline becomes daily, becomes weekly, becomes monthly, it starts to become natural where we start to live self-denial and and see the value in self-denial more than getting what I want. We start to define what I want is what God, what I need is actually what God wants for me. And I start to pursue those things instead of redefining and and shaking plates, keeping plates in the air, trying trying to spend, trying to figure out, do I need this? Do I want this? Do I need this? Do I want it? What does he want for me? That's what I should want. That's my need. As I lay that that stuff down every day and I pick up what he wants for me that day, I start to see the picture of self-denial and what that looks like, and it is, it is hard. And I'll tell you what, it sticks out in our culture because our culture doesn't look like that at all. And if we want to look like Christ in a, in, a, in a Christless culture, you start to pick up some self-denial, and you'll start to see what that looks like because those around you are going to think you're freakish if you start to deny, deny yourself and what you want to, to the benefit and gain of others, to the good of someone else besides you, to the glory of your Lord. It, it's freakish-looking. And I'm going to tell you, there's something contagious about that. Why? Because there's something in us that wants to be loved. There's something in us that wants to be valued <clears throat> and seen and noticed by someone else. And if we can elevate their importance above ours, their salvation above my own, their willingness to come to know Christ above me, their, their own desire for good above my own. When that, when that comes out of my life, it stands out. It's a loud, loud witness. It's a loud, loud example of who he is, what he's about, and what he's called us to. Those are the benefits of the wilderness to show us those things. They can't be seen when life's working. Those kinds of lessons can't be, can't be learned when life is clicking. They just can't. They're learned when things get hard. They're learned when we figure out this is a greater value than this because now I'm in a life or death situation or I'm in a situation where my health may be sacrificed or relationships can be sacrificed or maybe a job sacrificed. And I'm in a situation now where I've got to decide what matters from what doesn't. And in those moments... We find out who he really is. In those moments, we find out what we really value, whether we're we're the ones defining need and want or whether he is. We're the ones We're the ones walking in self-denial or whether they are someone else's. He wants that for us. We need to want that for ourselves. Let's pray.